This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Hello, friends, and welcome back. Today I'm going to return to something that I spoke about a little while ago. This is the Hebrew word charaz, and I mentioned it when I was talking about breakthrough insights. And today is probably the first of several such episodes that will be in the teaching style of charaz. The word charaz is the Hebrew word for a bead or stringing together beads. And it's a word that is used to describe a kind of teaching. In Hebrew, it's called the stringing of pearls. And so today I'm going to share some things that have crossed my desk recently. And I realize that they didn't really fit together into any particular topic that I was going to talk about. Or I couldn't expand them into a full 30, 40 minute talk. But they're things that have caught my attention. And I thought it'd be good just to share them with you in the form of charaz, all string together this necklace today of various things that have caught my attention, touched my heart, struck me as something that I'd like to share with others. And I hope it's helpful to you. So that's what I'll be doing today. I'll be stringing together various bits of information, different things that have crossed my desk, maybe a couple of stories, not exactly sure how far I'll go with all this. I've got a list here of things that I keep writing down as something to share. And then now's the time to get to a few of them. So what to do first? I think first I will talk about a letter that was written by Elizabeth Elliot in 1958, in October of 1958. For those of you who don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, she was a missionary and an author. She had a radio program. She spoke for many, many years in many different places, mostly in women's ministry and encouraging women to be good wives and mothers and disciples, followers of Jesus. And her story is remarkable. As a young woman, she and her husband and their little girl were missionaries in Ecuador. And her husband and four other men went in to bring the gospel to a tribe that had never heard the gospel, and not only that, had never been in contact with the outside world directly. And at the time they were called the Alka, now they're called the Warani. And this tribe, which I'll refer to as the Alka now just because that's the way that Elizabeth refers to this tribe in this letter. After her husband and the four men were killed, she felt the call and was invited, actually, by some of the women in the tribe to go into the village and live with the people that had killed her husband. And just before she goes into the village, before she packs up and actually walks in to go live with them, and she lived there a couple of years. So Elizabeth Elliot wrote a letter to her supporters in the United States. She signed it Betty Elliot. Remember, her husband had been killed mm, a couple of years prior, year and a half, something like that. And she writes this letter to her supporters. And also, I meant to mention, if you're interested in knowing more about her, just visit elizabethelliot.org. That's an S in Elizabeth and two L's in Elliot, elizabethelliot.org. And there's a timeline on that site that has pictures of her life, 
And then many of her radio programs are there and talks and books and devotionals and things like that. So as I was going through some of the different documents that we have access to, I'm working with the Elizabeth Elliott Foundation. I came across this letter. It's really something. So remember, she's been invited in to live with the people who have killed her husband. She writes, I'm writing this hoping that by the time you receive it, we shall be living with the very people who were responsible for killing my husband, Rachel's brother, and three other men. She had been invited to live there by some of the Alka women, and she went in there with Rachel Saint as well, and Rachel's brother was one of the five that were killed. Dayuma, one of the ladies in the tribe, says that six of the seven men who did the killing are there waiting for us. Their names are Kimo, Monga, Nimunga, Minkaya, Gikita, and Kumi. Perhaps some of you will pray for them. They are the only men in the entire group, which, according to a census Dayuma made from memory at my request, numbers 59. So there are 59 in the tribe, but there's just a few men. They've all been killing each other. And different people have different ideas about going into tribes and bringing the gospel and how that can be. (laughs) Some people will say that that's destructive to the culture. But this culture was killing itself. And when they received the gospel, they were so happy to know that they did not have to keep killing each other. I'll continue with the letter. Perhaps some of you will pray for them. The other man who helped kill the men was Nankiwi, otherwise known as George, whose picture most of you have seen, as he was the one who met the five men on Palm Beach. A couple of days before the men were killed, George and a couple of ladies came out from the tribe and met them and talked to them. And if you visit the website, you can see some video and pictures of George because they made a movie two days before they were killed and they actually sent the film out. So there's video of the men and some of the tribe members on the beach just a couple of days before they were killed. Continuing with her letter. Besides the other six mentioned above, there's another that I forgot, Dabu. He wept when the five missionaries were killed and says that if he had been consulted, it would not have happened. So isn't that something? So here she writes, and this is something that I want to emphasize. All the evidence at present points to a successful entrance for us, she says. And continuing, but I often think of the Nambiquara tribe in Brazil. The Tylees, uh, I believe they were an American family, entered that tribe, lived among them happily for about two years, and one day, due apparently to a minor misunderstanding, the Indians simply wiped out the missionaries. Mrs. Tylee was thought dead, but later regained consciousness to find her husband, an American nurse, the Tylee baby, and several national helpers dead. So... This is what Elizabeth Elliot is writing to her supporters. It looks like we'll survive, but we have to remember the Tylees who lived with the tribe for a couple of years, and then they were killed. And then she quotes Psalm 60, verse 20, To God the Lord belongs escape from death. I'll stop here and tell another story that I heard her tell in one of the recordings that we have. As she was going in, And there are pictures of her walking in with her daughter sort of on her back and a little carrying seat that they built. As they were going into the tribe, coming out, they met a young woman who had been 
captured by the tribe and lived there for quite a while, an extended time, a couple of years, maybe more. And the young lady said to Elizabeth, as Elizabeth is walking in with her child, she said, you're going to be dead soon. And the lady's story was that she had been abducted and held, and there was a man there, a trapper, I think he was a Frenchman, and they treated him so badly that he killed himself just in the middle of the village. And they left his body on the ground just to rot away. They didn't move his body. And they pulled the teeth out of this man's body and gave the teeth to the children to play with. And that's what Elizabeth, as a young woman under 30, going in with her child, (laughs) that's what she was moving into. So now I'll finish up with how she finished up her letter. She writes, Even if we are received and our entrance is, quote, successful, unquote, in the physical sense, what of their reception of Christ, she writes. I am much helped by the thought of the verse, Whoso receiveth you receiveth me. She's quoting the Bible where Jesus says, If anyone receives you, they receive me. And she writes, continuing, May it be so with the Alcas. I ask you to pray for them, for us as we go, that the name of the Lord may be exalted. I would like to repeat what I've said to several when they knew of my intention to enter the tribe. I would never go because I thought it would be, quote, safe, unquote, or for any other reason, such as, quote, carrying on my husband's work, unquote, or whatever. There is one reason alone, and this is what she writes. I believe it is simply the next step. It is the thing required at the moment. And then she has a quote. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I shall not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. And then she signs it in that confidence, Betty Elliot. I just wanted to share this letter, how remarkable it is her obedience. And her acts of obedience are known to us because she wrote this letter and books were published, but there were other people, the Tileys, before her. I think they went in maybe 20, 30 years before Elizabeth Elliot went in to this tribe. But the Tileys did the same. They moved in, lived with the tribe, and then the tribe killed them. I've done some work in Congo, and I met the son of a missionary who was murdered back in the 1960s in Congo. His father was one of, I think, 40, 41 missionaries that were killed all at once at the same time back in the 60s. The women and the children were allowed to leave, but all the men were killed. To me, this is a real example of a life of faith. And she says she's not going in there because it's safe or because she wants to carry on her husband's work. Nothing romantic about it. She believed it's the next step that it was the thing that was required at that moment. And one of her life lessons that she taught many, many people is do the next thing. Once you know the will of God, you do the will of God. And if the will of God is not totally clear to you, just do the next thing. Keep moving. Keep acting in faith. Do the next thing. I'll include a link in the show notes to this file. It'll be on the Elizabeth Elliott website. You can read it yourself. It's really, really good. Her story is amazing. Really an amazing story. 
The next thing I want to talk about is something that I came across. It's also related to Elizabeth Elliott. She wrote a biography of Amy Carmichael, who was a missionary in India, in the southern part of India, in the early 1900s, all the way up into the, I think, the 1950s. Amy Carmichael lived in India for about 50 years as a missionary, started uh, what is called the Donover Fellowship, which is still active, which became a very large orphanage. I think over 900 children were there. Many of the children had been saved from a life of temple prostitution as part of some of the cults in India. And Amy Carmichael, like some mission organizations right now, she had a lot of people that wanted to come over from uh, the West, England, the United States, to help her because she became known as having a very active ministry. I know of some ministries right now that are attracting people, not because they really want to go to die to themselves. They want to go to be a part of something cool and neat. Well, Amy Carmichael had a list of questions for prospective recruits. I had heard Elizabeth Elliot mention this in passing a few of the points. And finally, actually, as I was going through the contents of Elizabeth Elliot's computer, when she died, there were quite a few files on her computer. And one of those files is this list of questions that Amy Carmichael would ask of people who had expressed an interest in coming to serve at the Donover Fellowship. And I'll read a few of these questions because they're super good questions for people that are thinking about going on the mission field, meaning to leave their home culture and go into another culture. Now that can mean leaving your home country and going to another country, or it can mean leaving your local culture and going into a different culture that's a 10-minute drive from where you are. So I don't make a hard line between missionaries and non-missionaries. We're all called to reach out to people that are beyond us. So these are very good questions, not only for people that are going out, but also, I think, for every believer, really. So um, I won't read all of them. Let me see how many there are. There's 24 total in this questionnaire. Uh, Some of them relate specifically to the Donover Fellowship. First question, how long is it since you gave yourself holy to the Lord? Well, that's a good question. How long has it been since you gave yourself wholly to the Lord for his service? And for some people, has that happened? Question number four is great. I'll read it in full here. Do you truly desire to live a crucified life? This may mean doing very humble things joyfully for his name's sake. Isn't that great? Do I truly desire to live a crucified life, doing very humble things joyfully for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his name? Boy, that's good. I'll tell a little story. I had a friend of mine contact me years ago. He was an old friend from high school. I had not heard from him forever. And I got an email from him. He looked me up, found me on, I think, through our website, He contacted me, and he was very enthusiastic about joining our work. He loved what he had read on the Internet about what I was doing at the time. That was when I was directing the organization in St. Petersburg and working with orphans and running camps. Of course, we're still doing a lot of that work, but he was very enthusiastic and said, I'd love to join you. I want to know more. And so I've learned that even if someone is very enthusiastic, that doesn't necessarily mean this is the will of God for that person or for us, and I've learned that it takes time to discern the will of God when somebody wants to 
come alongside us and work with us. So I set up a phone call with him, and we exchanged more emails. I asked him some questions. And I'll tell you, in the future, when I do this, I'm going to use some of Amy Carmichael's questions <laughs> because they're so good. And as I talked to this guy uh, through emails and then speaking with him, it turned out that he had recently been divorced and he was lost in life and he was grasping for something to do that had some meaning. And as I talked to him, I just realized, well, that's not the motivation of the kind of people that we want working with us. And I believe Amy Carmichael must have learned a similar lesson because she asked this question of people that express their interest to work with her. Do you truly desire to live a crucified life? And I didn't ask my friend that when I was talking to him. I did ask things that were similar, but his answer I don't think would have been yes. He was actually trying from my discernment, he was trying to take up his life. He was trying to find meaning for his life. He's trying to find something to hang on to so that he could feel good about his life. But we have to be careful not to put our activities or our ministry in the place of Jesus himself. Jesus is the truth. He is the way of life. He is what our hearts long for, and only through him can we then move into areas of service that are eternally fruitful. So, question four, do you truly desire to live a crucified life? Question five, it's really good, and it's related. Does the thought of hardness draw you or repel you? <laughs> I love it. Uh, it reminds me of the message to Paul when he first met the Lord on the road to Damascus, and then when his sight was returned to him. And remember, the Lord said, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. That was the beginning of Paul's ministry. So this question, does the thought of hardness draw you or repel you? Well, I got to say, honestly, I was going to say most Americans, but many American Christians are repelled by the thought of hardness. And we need to be drawn by the thought of hardness, things being hard. God calls his people into things that are tough because he wants his people in the middle of really difficult circumstances. Jesus himself came into the middle of very difficult circumstances for people. Lepers and prostitutes and liars and cheats and zealots, and he was really ministering in the middle of hard things. That was question five. Does the thought of hardness draw you or repel you? Number six is great. Do you love unity and loyalty? What does the word loyalty mean to you? That's her question. Do you love unity and loyalty? Why, man. One of my life verses, a life verse for my family, for my marriage, and certainly it comes up very often in church settings, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep spiritual unity. And the question is, do you love unity and loyalty? You know, I do. I love it because when we are unified, God's blessings flow. It's one of my highest priorities in ministry and in life. And I often say it's better to have unity than to have clarity. Sometimes I'm with a group of people and we don't really know exactly how God's going to work, but we're unified 
in that we together don't have clarity at the moment, but we are in unity, spiritual unity together as we go through that process. And that unity is a much higher value than having any specific clarity about any specific question at the time. Because God is going to give us what we need when we need it, and we have to fight for unity. Question number seven is excellent. Do you realize that we're a family, not an institution? In our work for our children and others, we all cooperate as the need arises. Are you willing to do what helps most? I like it too. I often talk about the Stoneworks family. Of course, we're an organization. We're chartered under certain laws by the U.S. government, but we want to act as a family. We're brothers and sisters, right? So going on down the list of these questions, there's a couple of other questions that are good. Apart from the Bible, can you name three or four books that have been vital help to you? That's a really good question. If I were to ask that question, and as I said in the future, I likely will, that would help me discern where people are in their spiritual life. What are the books that are really meaningful to people? Here's a good one. Have you ever had the opportunity to prove our Lord's promise to supply temporal as well as spiritual needs. That's great. Have you ever had an opportunity to see God provide miraculously for our physical needs, not just spiritual needs? This is a good one for people that are going on the mission field. And we just added some folks as partners that are going to be serving in Romania. And this was a topic of conversation. Have you financial responsibilities towards anyone? Are you indebted to anyone? And the continuation of this question is, are you likely to be called home for family reasons? And she says, it'll help us know about this because for the work's sake, we need to know what we can count upon. That's good. A great question for missionaries, are your parents in sympathy with your offering to us? That's a really good question. That doesn't mean if your parents aren't in sympathy that you can't go, but it's a good thing to know. Because I know missionaries whose parents are not sympathetic to their work, and that's a drag and a burden, and it's an issue that they bump up against, and it's one that I need to be involved in as they go through it. So it's good to know that in advance. I am so thankful that my parents were always sympathetic with my life, even if they were a little confused by it and my mom had some fear. As I walked in obedience over the years, they began to see the good work of God and their fears and their concerns really dissipated after that. Another question that is offered here is great, and I'm asking you these things too. Can you mention any experience you have passed through in your Christian life which brought you into a new discovery of your union with the crucified, risen, and enthroned Lord? (laughs) That's great. Just the way it's said is wonderful. I'll read it again. Can you mention any experience you've passed through in your Christian life which brought you into a new discovery of your union with the crucified, risen, and enthroned Lord? How would you answer that question? Good stuff. The next question is a good one, too. Can you be content to respect the views of others as regards interpretation of the Scriptures without trying to impress yours upon them? And then she puts in parentheses here this next sentence. She says, We have a wonderful opportunity to prove that it is possible for people who love the Lord and believe his book to work together in perfect harmony, even though their views about certain matters may be different. 
Amen. A wonderful opportunity to show that it is possible to have different understandings of certain things in the Bible, but we can have spiritual unity. Amen. And then I'll just read one more here. And it's a very simple question. It's great, though. It's very insightful. She asks, are you free from all entanglements? And that's all she asks. Are you free from all entanglements? And you know what? As followers of Jesus, we need to be free from all entanglements. We shouldn't owe anybody any debt except the debt of love. Now, the world wants to entangle us. and We can get wrapped up. The scriptures talk about the sin that so easily entangles. And the Lord wants us to be free. I spoke about this recently. He's called us to be free, free from all entanglements. Are you free from all entanglements? And if not, I encourage you, take steps to be free from those entanglements. If at all possible, work to be set free from those entanglements. Well, that may mean a financial debt. And you may have to choose a life that's much simpler than you've been living just so you can have a little more money floating around so you can pay off this debt so you'll be free. And I'll tell you from my personal experience, I used to have some debt when I lived in America. And God moved in my life in such a way that I was able to be debt-free. And I've been living now for over 20 years without any debt at all. I don't owe anybody anything financially. And it's a great feeling. It means that the cars I drive are not the newest and best. It means the phones that I have are the older models. I'm not going to go into debt for things that um, the value is going to go to zero at some point anyway. Think about it. If you buy a car and you buy it full price and then you're paying on it, the value of it goes from what you paid for it to zero at some point. And that's true of telephones and laptops and much in our lives. And we shouldn't be going into debt for things that are going to be worth nothing within a few years. So anyway, think about that. If the Lord puts it on your heart to start really being active to get out of these entanglements, go ahead and get out of them. So those were some of the questions that Amy Carmichael asked of people who were wanting to come and work in her ministry and serve. And primarily the focus of these questions is, are you coming to die to yourself or to take up your own life? Do you want to live a crucified life? Are you willing to be humble? Are you breaking away from the world? And are you walking in unity with the Lord And do you value unity and loyalty with other believers? That's the kind of person that needs to be in the mission field, not needy, lost people who aren't quite sure what God is doing and they're going to go on a mission trip to see if they can find meaning in life. You know, we go into other cultures to represent Christ. We have to go in spiritual strength. And spiritual strength means death to self. That's what it means people who are surrendering their own lives and allowing the life of God to flow through them. All right, so that was a couple of things that were related to Elizabeth Elliot. Now I want to mention something that came across my Facebook feed. I'm not on Facebook a lot, but I do get on there from time to time. And one of the young ladies who was on a mission trip to, I think it was to Estonia with us a few years ago, her name kind of pops up occasionally. We're not close friends at all. 
And I won't mention her name. Some of you may know her. Oh, she may be listening. <laughs> so we'll see. You may know if I'm talking about you. So on Facebook, there was one of these little games or whatever. You click on something, and it was called, What is God Trying to Tell You? And then you would click on it, and then a, a message would pop up. And supposedly it was God telling you something. And so she had posted the result of this little game or whatever, and it had this, quote, word from God, unquote, printed there. And then she said, amen, or something like that, and her other friends were giving thumbs up and likes and all that stuff. But boy, it really stood out to me what this God, small g God, was saying to this Christian. (laughs) Okay, so this is what this Facebook thing claimed that God was saying to this young lady. Here it is. Quote, keep in mind that you don't need to change anything about yourself for anyone. I want you to love yourself the way I love you, end quote. (laughs) That's what somebody somewhere came up with to say this is what God is trying to tell you. Keep in mind you don't have to change anything about yourself for anyone. I want you to love yourself the way I love you. So there's two thoughts there, but they're related, I believe. And this is supposedly coming from God to an individual. This false God is saying, keep in mind, you don't need to change anything about yourself or anyone. I want you to love yourself the way I love you. So the overall message seems to be you are great the way you are. You don't need to change it all. I love you just the way you are. And you need to love yourself that way. You don't need to change it all. Well, that is not what God ever said to anyone. Matter of fact, he said in many ways the exact opposite of both of these thoughts. I'm afraid to say that we do need to change. That's what repentance is. Now, I don't need to change myself so that other humans will like me, but I do need to change for the sake of Christ. The very first thing that Jesus said, that John the Baptist says, that Peter says, repent. And I'll say it again in case we have some new listeners. This word repentance in Greek is metanoia, a new mind. And in English, repentance actually carries with it a very similar meaning. Someone who is pensive is someone who is thoughtful. And to repent is to rethink, to have a new mind. And the first step of coming into relationship with a loving God is to realize that we're just thinking about things wrong and his ways are completely different from our ways. And people would call out and ask, what must we do? We know we're on the wrong path, but what do we do? do? How do we repent? How do we change? We need the wisdom of God to show us how do we act differently? How do we think differently? So that's the first thing. You and I need to change for the sake of Christ. hate to say it, but that was the commandment of the Lord. need to repent and then believe. So we need to be willing to change. As a matter of fact, it's necessary. Now, the second sentence is, ugh, it really, it sounds so nice, but it's so wicked. God saying to a person, I want you to love yourself the way I love you. There is nothing in the scripture that would come anywhere close to having God tell people they need to love themselves. 
There's nothing even close, honestly. People will twist and turn, but it, it actually makes no sense. I want you to love yourself the way I love yourself. Does that mean consider your own needs above the needs of yourself? <laughs> well, what did God say? I mean, it's not worth anything for Mike Cantrell to say. He didn't say that. What did he say? Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Love me by being obedient. And love others the way that you love yourself. And that means that we take our self-love and we aim it on other people. I want to say that again. Aim that self-love away from yourself and on to others. Consider the needs of others above yourself. Jesus said, don't think about yourself. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. So don't even worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. And those things tie in directly to our self-love. Do you want to be happy? Do you want to have a nice place to live? Do you want to be well-fed? Do you want to have good clothing? Do you want to be in good relationships with good people? Enjoy the company of like-minded people? Well, that's all self-love. And turn that away. We should turn that self-concern on to others. We want other people to be happy. We want other people to be well-fed and have a home. We want other people to have good relationships and be solid and enjoy the company of other like-minded people. We want other people to thrive. And I've said it before in these talks, and I'll say it here again. Back when I was a teenager, I went through this teenage kind of angst melancholy. There was a lady that I had this crush on and she didn't love me because rightly so. Why would she care about some goofy teenager? <laughs> but I thought, I'll just kill myself. I hate my life. I wasn't really going to kill myself, but you know, it's that teenage overreaction to things. And well, now I look back and I was saying that I hated my life and I wanted to die. And I realize now that that was the ultimate expression of self-love. I wanted my life to be good. I wanted to be fulfilled. I wanted to be happy, and I wasn't, and therefore I hated my life, but I really loved myself. I know that sounds contrary. Somebody who says, I want to die, but it really is a sign of self-love. Let me say it another way, and I'm saying this just personally. If I really hated myself, I would have wanted that suffering to continue. Now, the devil hates me. And he wants that suffering to continue. But I didn't want that suffering to continue. I loved myself so much that I wanted to alleviate my suffering. <laughs> so God is saying, you need to change and repent and think differently. That's the way to enter into the kingdom. Change your thinking and then believe in Jesus. And he's saying, aim your self-love on other people. Don't think about yourself. Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, there's something in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that speaks directly to this. Verses 1 through 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be, now here comes a good list of signs of the terrible times. I'll skip the first one and come back to it. People will be lovers of money. People will be boastful. People will be proud and abusive. People will be disobedient to their parents. That's a sign of a terrible time in the last days. 
People will be ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And he ends this little section with, have nothing to do with them. Well, I left out the very first item in this list. Mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be, first item, lovers of themselves. That is a mark of the terrible times in the last days, that people will be lovers of themselves. So here's this little Facebook game saying you need to love yourself. And it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing. It's a mark of the corruption of the human heart. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, lovers of themselves. It really is terrible. And this message of God's love for us, while true, very often feeds into the world's desire for love and self-love and self-pleasure. I've said it before, and I'm preparing a talk. I'll do it at some point. In the New Testament, we don't see ever any one time where Jesus says to one of his disciples, I love you. It's just not in the scriptures. Now, God shows his love to his people. He does love his people. And his love is so very important. But we don't have any example of Jesus saying, I love you to any person. I think I've told this story before. I may have said what city it was in. I won't mention it right now. But as one of these churches, I think it's trying to be, quote, seeker sensitive, unquote. And on the wall of this church, written into the wall, was this phrase. If Jesus could say one thing to you, he would say, I love you. That was right by the main entrance of the church. Not a sign hanging on the wall, but actually carved into the wall of the church. A marker of one of the core values of this church. If Jesus could say anything to you, he would say, I love you. And when I saw that, I thought, there's no evidence for that. He never said that to anybody. Why would you even say to somebody here, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say to you, I love you. He didn't say that to people that he sat down with when he was walking the earth. I hope I'm not offending people, but the evidence would be that he would say, you need to repent. You need to change. The kingdom of God is here. And in order to enter into that kingdom of God, you have to be different. You have to be born again. You've got to start over. Now that is God showing his love for us speaking the truth, and making a way for us to go from death to life. He shows his love. He really acts on that love. But we need to be careful not to misrepresent what Jesus would say to people or what God is saying to people. It's, I believe, wicked to present God as saying, I want you to love yourself the way I love you. He doesn't want that of us. As a matter of fact, one of the marks of the last days is people are going to love themselves. Again, what I think this little thing is saying is, I love you just the way you are. You don't have to change a thing. You need to be happy with who you are and not feel like you have to be different. 
but that's not really the way Jesus presented things. Now, I will say, most religious people would say, I need to be better so that I can come to God. That's the basis of religion, I think. I need to do certain things or be a different way so that I can be more righteous and then I can come before God. But Christianity is the flip of that. What the Lord is saying to his people, you come to me and then you'll be made better. I'm going to make you better, but you come to me. So in that sense, we don't have to change in order to come to God. We just go to him as we are, but we have to go humbly and we have to go realizing that when we go to God, we can't hang on to ourselves. We can't keep the things that we like and give him the things that we don't like. Everything is surrendered to him. Every part of our lives is surrendered to the Lord. And we've got to be willing to completely change. Let him do what he's going to do so that we can, as the scriptures say, we can share in his divine nature. We can live a life that's full of spiritual fruit and spiritual gifts. It's a whole new life. It's a completely different thing. It's a completely new covenant. Okay, well, I guess I've talked enough about Facebook there. (laughs) I think there's one other thing that I will mention here. And yeah, I've got a few other things on my list, but um, I don't even know how long I've been talking now. But I'll tell a story. And this is actually a shocking story, and I hate to end up with it, but it's something that I do want to mention because we are in a time in the history of the church. That is like other times in the history of the church, of course, but there are great battles going on within the church. And I believe there are wolves in sheep's clothing in the church now. There's a lot of false teaching, and I've spoken about it before here on the podcast. There's a lot of worldliness in the church, the church embracing the values of the world and then acting as if those are God's values. So this is the story. A few years ago, we were visiting Austin. I lived in Austin for a while. We were over there visiting, and we ended up staying with a lady who had been recently divorced. She and her husband were Christians going to a Methodist church there in Austin. And after, I'm assuming, maybe 30 years of marriage, he announces that he is a homosexual and that he's always been homosexual, and that that's the way God made him. Even though he'd been married and fathered a couple of children, now he's announcing that he's a homosexual. And the leadership of the Methodist Church encouraged him in that lifestyle and encouraged him to divorce his wife so that he could pursue this other lifestyle. And when she told us this story, I just, uh, you know, uh, really dumbfounded. And I'll, for a moment, set aside even the issue of homosexuality. How could the leadership of a church encourage a man to divorce his wife of 30 years and go live a life that is based on self-gratification? I could imagine a man saying to a church leadership, you know, I have a real desire for other women that I've met. God made me this way. I don't want to just be bound to this one woman. I feel like God has made me to be an adulterer. 
that's the way he's made me. And I want to go and I want to pursue this sexual liberation because that's the way God made me. And I, I, it's hard to imagine, but it apparently happens. <laughs> it did happen here that the church leadership would say, yes, right, God has made you that way, and God wants you to be free. And well, here we come back to it. God wants you to love yourself the way that he loves you, which is unconditionally, without any judgment. So you should leave your wife and go pursue these other relationships. I, it's, it's wicked. It's really, really wicked. And this poor lady, can you imagine the shock that that was to her? And she ended up with a little house that she was renting out on Airbnb just to make a living. And then the pandemic came and people were not renting the house and she had to sell the house. And she ended up in a small apartment with her dog. You know, a few years earlier, she was married and had a future with her husband, and now she's just abandoned and on her own, and, and the church not only approved of it, but encouraged it. Then we get back to the issue of homosexuality, which is such a strong force in the culture right now. And of course, that issue, while being embraced by the world, is not something that is embraced by God. Here's an example of a church encouraging a member of the congregation to sin. And that's terrible. And I know young people who are being persuaded to think that the world's views of these things are correct and should be brought into the church because there are wolves in sheep's clothing in positions of authority in national denominations right now and sitting in the seats of pastors right now, and we have to be discerning, and we have to know the Word of God. We have to know God himself. And it reminds me of what Jesus said, if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And this is happening right now in so many ways, in so many places. People claim to have the light, but it's darkness. And boy, when somebody says, what I believe is light and truth, but it's actually pitch black, that is such a terrible darkness. They're totally deceived and they're deceiving other people. And we need to stand up against that. Well, that was on my list of things to share today. I think I need to go ahead and wrap it up for now. Uh, thank you for listening this far. And again, if you have any questions for me or any responses, anything that you'd like to share, please feel free to drop me a line at ancientpaths at cantrell.cc. And I'll close with the scripture that is so familiar to us by now, Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. Jesus said to his disciples, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you for listening, and God bless you all.